two weeks ago, I went to, uh, we were driving back from a wedding, went to a wedding, one of our kids got married, not my personal child, one of our kids from the church got married in Virginia, and there was a lot of traffic on the road, and I hate traffic. And, and um, I don't turn into a completely different person, but I, I become somewhat different on the road when there's tremendous traffic, and there was tremendous traffic, and I hate it, and I was in a slightly sour mood. And you know uh, who gets, you know, kind of that when you're in a slightly sour mood? It's the person sitting next to you, right? The person sitting next to you usually get, gets that. And I wasn't mean or anything, but I just wasn't nice. I wasn't, you know, jovial or talking or anything like that. So Marianne, my wife, turned as we went past Baltimore. She turned in near, uh, into a Baltimore radio station that was playing all Christmas music. And I was magically transformed from gloomy to gleeful. Especially when I heard Andy Williams singing this song that many of you know. You know this one, don't you? Right? It's the hap happiest. Or anyone, anyway, I was reminded of Christmas past uh, when, when he, that music was going on, when that specific song came on of ribbons and, and tags and Christmases that came with packages, boxes, and bags, and light, light, lots and lots and lots of lights. I love thousands of lights. We always put thousands of lights on our Christmas tree, and I was reminded of that, and I started to feel pretty good pretty soon, and after a while, I didn't even realize that I was in traffic. I didn't even care, because you know what? It had changed my mood completely because, after all, this is the most wonderful time of the year. Do you know what the single most overwhelming temptation for a preacher is at this time of year? It's to always preach sermons that keep the foot tapping and the holiday grin in place from ear to ear because no one expects to hear anything else at Christmas time, because no one wants to hear anything else at Christmas time. And yet, and yet, as I was thinking about it these last few weeks, if I am to believe statistics and the anecdotal conversations that I have had with a number of you, this is not the most wonderful time of the year. On Monday morning, December 9th, I was beginning work on this message that I'm preaching tonight. And as I typed that last sentence, for many of you, this is not the most wonderful time. And my phone went off, and I was typing, and I wanted to finish, and I finished the sentence. And then I picked up the phone, and I spoke to someone that told me that a dear, dear friend, fellow pastor and counselor, who had lost his wife earlier this year, had found his 36-year-old son dead in his apartment from a drug overdose. The next day word that a fellow officer of one of our own police officers here at the Crossing Church, a colleague of his, was killed in what they called a domestic terrorist attack in Jersey City. Earlier this month, we did successive Saturday funerals right here for Pastor, Pastor Peter's mom, Gerta, wonderful, lovely woman, and Shelly Romali, a teacher who taught kids from bad backgrounds, bad neighborhoods, uh, very little economic uh, wherewithal, and uh, they stood up in this uh, service and one after another said how their lives have changed by this woman. 
Some of them are graduating college now. She had them when they were little. And, and we had her funeral, and she was attendee here. Folks, I look at all that stuff and many, many more things that I could look to, and I say, no, you know what? For more than a few of you, Christmas 2019 is the most difficult time of the year. For you, there's not as much laughter as there is crying. Just over five years ago, we lost our son, Joseph, and that Christmas was the saddest. Oh, it was so sad. And they really haven't been the same since. They just haven't. And for some, now on, from, from now on, because of what happened this Christmas season, uh, it's not going to be all tinsel and gingerbread houses and caroling and chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Because along with the much mistletoeing and hearts that are glowing, there will be memories and there will be sadness. There are a lot and a number of sad challenges presented here Christmas in this room to some of you. Are, it, isn't that true? It is true. And along with the extraordinary sadness of some comes, you know, the garden variety aches and pains that we all go through. I, I know what's going on here at the Cross and Church with our people. See, we, we have people that are really struggling with fears. Fears galore and, and lots and lots of wounds. And here's a partial list. They struggle with depression, with physical pain, with chronic illness, with encroaching poverty, with loneliness, financial abundance, and an unhappy home. They have been victims of crime. They have been incarcerated. People deeply hurt by confidences revealed. People hurt by leaders. People whose faith was strong, but now they're starting to take on the look of confirmed skeptics. People living at a distance from loved ones, finding this blended family thing, hey, it just ain't working. People who are staring at divorce. People who are on the shock side of an affair. People who are the victims of verbal and physical misuse and abuse, condemnation, misunderstanding, impatience, substance abuse, and other sundry forms of emotional and spiritual carnage. There are children of some of our people who won't be at Christmas dinner because they live in the far country next door to the prodigal son. There are jobs that have been eliminated, relationships that are broken, Dreams that have been shattered recently or maybe a long, long time ago. And the truly sad thing is that at this time of year, it just makes it a little sadder, doesn't it? Just a little bit darker. That's part of Christmas 2019 for some of us. If you are here this Christmas and you are anywhere in that group that I just discussed, this message is for you, and I want to speak to you. I want to speak to the brokenhearted. I want to speak to the ones who don't feel better, but feel worse this time of year. And I want to do so because often I think instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, as Christians are supposed to do, at this time of year, we end up rejoicing with those who are weeping. And at least for this year, we're not going to do that. And you need to know that it was for you. It was exactly for you, the brokenhearted, that the baby was born. If it was for those struggling in gloom, it was for those struggling in darkness that Jesus Christ came. 800 years before Jesus 
came on the scene before the first Christmas story happened, a prophet in Israel looked ahead to this season, and he wrote this. He said, the people walking in darkness see a bright light. Light shines on those who live in a land of deep darkness. I was reminded some time ago how those people involved with the original Christmas story were not ensconced in happy situations. Think of Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph are a big part of this story, aren't they? For instance, uh, Luke tells us that in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. A decree went out from Caesar for every male, if you don't know the story, to return to their ancestral city. He wanted to take a census. Why? What do you think he wanted to take a census? Taxes. Well, it's always about taxes, right? It's always about money, right? So they want to count everybody. And, and, and as they made that trip, it was a very simple reminder that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus lived as a minority people who had no real p- political power, not at all, or even a voice. And, uh, you know, any important decision that was ever made for their life was being made for them by the Roman government. A Roman government who could care less about the outskirts of Rome. Once you, get, once you got outside of Italy and Rome, you know, all those people were taxed nearly to death to bring it all back home again. They couldn't have cared less about them. And, and worse... They were forced to travel during the ninth month of Mary's pregnancy, her first pregnancy. We got a lot of moms out here, right, who had one child or maybe more. And, you know, you know how you freaked out the first child. Second child's like, oh, it's not, not quite that bad. Third child's like, eh, whatever, you know. And it's, like, it's like, you know, you got pictures of the first one, but you get down to the fourth child. It's like, do we have any pictures of this child? Did we ever take a picture of this child? It's like, that's just what happens. But, but the first child, we, we, we all get it. Uh, every, every, it. You know, everything is new, every ache, every pain. What's this? What is that? And she is forced to get on a donkey with her husband and travel 90 miles, like from here to Scranton, Pennsylvania. In the wintertime there at that time. And most of the journey is not chronicled in the gospel. At a time when she should have been right next to the most trusted midwife that she could get her hands on. In the scariest moment of her life, she's traveling on this terrible, dangerous journey with harsh conditions that, as I said, were not really chronicled in the gospels. James F. Strange, the New Testament biblical archaeology professor at the University of South Florida in Tampa, said this. He said, today we have no idea how difficult this journey was. It was a very grueling trip. They had to travel, as I said, 90 miles to the city of Joseph's ancestors, south along the flatlands of the Jordan River, then west over the hills surrounding Jerusalem, and then on again into Bethlehem. The trip through the Judean desert, would have taken place during the winter, when at night it regularly dipped into the 30s with rain, rain, rain. It was nasty, it was miserable, it was unthinkable for a woman nine months pregnant. And at night they would freeze. One of the most terrifying dangers in ancient Palestine was the heavily forested valley of the Jordan River. Lions and bears lived in the woods, and travelers had to fend off wild boars. That's, we have some archaeological evidence that told travelers how to, you know, club a boar when a boar attacked you when you're out walking along the path that they walked along, which is not something I ever think about when I go on a trip, i got to tell you right now. But they did. Add to those challenges the fact that bandits lurked all along the major trade routes like the one Joseph and Mary were traveling along. But after more than a week, they made it. Now, under normal circumstances, this pair would have, been, uh, would have expected to uh, stay with family members. 
or at, you know, at, at least you know, someone who they knew, friends or somebody. But, but they couldn't because everything was too crowded. So they decided to do you know, kind of a last resort thing. They decided to go to one of the inns. But the Bible says, you know what? The inns were all full in Luke chapter 2. And there was no place for them to stay. Now, what do you do when you go to your last resort and your last resort is not an option anymore? It's like yesterday we talked about a little bit here at the crossing. We talked about how map makers used to make maps. And then when they got beyond where they knew there was land, they knew there was something out there, but they didn't know what. They would just, you know, they would do pictures of dragons on the maps and, and have little captions that said, beyond here, there be dragons. Because that, what, what do you do when you get into dragon territory? What do you do when you go to the end and then there's nothing else? Well, you, you got to do something. She goes into labor. So Joseph finds a cave that was used to house animals. That must have been a beautiful place. Noisy, filthy conditions. Everything a new mother, right on cue. Everything, <laughs> everything a new mother would not have wanted, right? Uh, uh, it, it, look, you know, we get the Hallmark cards of, um, you know, the European Jesus and European mom and dad. Northern European, not even, not even Southern. And, and it's like, you know, it, it wasn't like that at all. It was nothing like that. But you know what? This was their first Christmas. And she, she wrapped that baby in swaddling clothes, you know, against the cold night air. And moms, you know this with your first child. They sneeze one time, you want to take them to the emergency room. And, and, and she wraps them in these little, this little cloth, you know, where he can get a pneumonia. And, and there they are, the picture of, of this, this terrified young man and this frightened little girl. That's the picture that we should see. No doctor, no hospital, no doula. No living room pool, no bath in their home, nothing warm, nothing romantic about this manger. But it was their story. Outside, in the fields nearby, there were shepherds, the Bible says. It says they were out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks at night. Oh, the shepherds, the gentle shepherds, you know, light, you know, the... the Skin like a baby's behind, and, and just gentle with the lambs, with the little... Folks, let me tell you something. This was the bone and muscle third shift blue-collar workers. They were bachelors who were ostracized and scorned in the culture of their, uh, uh, their time because of their work, because of their reputation. At, for the most part, at times, richly deserved their reputation because they were low on the scale of morals and personal integrity. Everybody knew that. Men who had little hope of ever rising significantly above the low opinion that society had of them and, if the truth be told, which they had of themselves. But they, too, were part of the Christmas story. Not long after his birth, some high-level Parthian priests, we called them wise men, arrived. I don't know how we arrived at three. It was never mentioned three. It's because they brought gifts, three gifts, but there might have been eight, there might have been nine. But they came, you know, a thousand mile westward trek to Herod's court just down the road from Bethlehem. And they were part of the story too. They had apparently studied the Hebrew scriptures and found within its scrolls a clear transcript of truth. In particular, the messianic prophecies about him in the Old Testament. And on the night of Christ's birth, a mysterious light appeared in the sky which became a luminous star that persisted in the western heavens. And they picked up, impressed by it, and they left. And as they tried to understand the meaning of the writings, 
they went in search of the Messiah. They didn't at first know where they were going, but following the star that led them, they went right to Jerusalem and went right to Herod's court. And there at Herod's court, after a long journey, they inquired about the little future king. And their inquiry set in motion another dark, dark scene that surrounds the real Christmas story. When Herod, who was king, Herod was a brutal, insecure, ego-driven tyrant. When he heard of a possible rival to his throne, he immediately tried to kill him. And he literally ordered the murder of every male toddler under the age of two. Now, imagine for a moment that awful night when soldiers on horseback rode down every street and burst into every house and in front of mothers and fathers took these little toddler baby boys just learning how to walk and butchered them in front of them. Comfortless, Rachel will weep for her children because they are no more. As far as I know, murder isn't high on the list of happy thoughts when we think of the Christmas story, but it is part of the story, too. Just before their arrival, Joseph was warned, rise up, take the child and the mother, and run, run, run for your lives. And now, now they were full-fledged refugees. They leave all they know, including nearly all their material possessions, and they flee for asylum to Egypt, to a neighboring country. And for a long time, they were Jews in a polythe polytheistic land. And it's a good thing they had those gifts that the Magi brought them, right? To live on, because I'm sure they sold it, and they were li lived on the money in this new harsh environment. And yes, yes, that frightening trek, that disturbing scene is part of the Christmas story, too. And then there was the mother. She had been blessed as no other woman before her. You know, little girls uh, for centuries in Israel wondered, could it be me? No, it can't be me. Well, maybe it's probably, a, no, you know what? I, but oh, it's got to be somebody. Maybe it is me. You know, somebody's got to win a lottery, right? Uh, that's what they always tell you, right? There's somebody who wins it. I mean, but so, maybe, maybe it is me. And then one day she was visited, the scripture says, by a celestial visitor who said, it's you. And she gave birth to the baby. Just a few days later, after the birth, at a most wonderful time of the year, at the dedication of her firstborn son in the temple, she was told unceremoniously by Simeon, a man who the Bible describes as righteous and devout, that this baby of hers, imagine this precious little, all they had been through, this precious little baby of hers, this promised baby, the one whom the angels refer to as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, that this little baby would grow up and at best, at best, be a controversial figure. Not so much a unifier as a separator. He even said so himself later on in his life. He said that, you know what? Families are going to be at odds over me. And I know that. And Simeon continued. He said, by the time his life is over, and he's looking at Mary, you will see things done to him which will make you feel as if a Roman sword is slicing right through the center of your heart. And all these things are part of the original Christmas story. 
And frankly, frankly, folks, it would all be almost too much to bear, except for one thing. When the angel appeared to a young carpenter who was engaged to this young girl who was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, he said this to him. He said, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Everything then would be perfect, right? Yet there was Simeon. And Simeon's words seemed to be saying to Mary that the birth of the child wasn't going to remove all grief. It wasn't going to remove hardship or even death in this world, at least not yet. Yes, she and Joseph had seen the ancient promise fulfilled. Hallelujah! But swords would remain. Souls were still going to ache, and people would limp. Christmases would be challenging. Good news of great joy did not remove God's people from a fallen world. For some of you, Jesus' birth rouses absolutely no joy. Really not even a second thought. Not because you don't want to join in the Christmas party, but because you're all too familiar with the kind of pain that has crushed you. But remember, remember what the prophet said? He said, the people walking in darkness have seen a bright light. And the bright light, in spite of everything happening to them, in spite of everything surrounding you now, that bright light, that is the center of the Christmas story. And on that first Christmas, the Bible says that God invaded earth. There was an invasion. And what that means is that the all-powerful creator, the all-knowing one, was made soft. He was made a baby. He came as the least threatening, most helpless creature on the earth, a little human baby. I can't almost think of anything more helpless. St. John the Apostle put it this way. He said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I like one translation. It said, uh, God sent his son, and he moved into the neighborhood. I kind of like that. I think because that's what it means. That word dwelling means literally to set up a tabernacle. A tabernacle is a tent. He set up a tent among his people. So what? Great. What, what, you know, what does that have to do with what I'm going through this Christmas? How exactly does that fact address the hurt that I felt last Christmas, and I feel this Christmas, and I'll probably feel next Christmas. Well, let me say just a couple of things. Because Jesus is at the heart of the story, you will never be alone. You will never be alone. A peculiar result oftentimes comes from sorrow. When someone is sorrowing, when someone's in trouble, when they're looking at it, when they're thinking about it, a lot of times it's accompanied by the feeling that nobody understands you. And nobody's gone through exactly. Yes, other people have had loss like you, but not exactly like us. You didn't know this person. You didn't understand this, the situation. You don't understand it fully. See, no one's really gone through it like I have gone through it. But if the word becoming flesh means anything, it means that he has walked the ground I have walked. And so he understands me. And he understands what I face. Here's why. Because he faced it too. See, he wanted to reach us. If he wanted to reach the dog community, he would have become a dog. But he wanted to reach people. And he came as a little baby. And you need to know that the appearance of the light in the darkness means someone truly, truly understands you. And Isaiah 9, verse 6, 
among his many attributes that are mentioned about the coming king, about the coming Messiah, one of the things that's said about him is that he is a wonderful counselor. Let's say this week you give me a call on the phone and you say, Pastor, I'm, uh, I'm having a lot of, there's a lot of trouble. I just want you to know that there's a lot of challenges in the marriage, challenges with the kids, challenges at my job. Frankly, I'm dealing with a mountain of hurt. And then you proceed to fill in, you know, the pencil sketches with some color. And as you proceed to fill in with the color commentary, I might say to you, well, let's get together this week, or I might say secretly to myself, good night, nurse. You know, good luck with that. Uh, let me, you know, let me quick get out of my Rolodex some names of people that I can refer because this is beyond my pay scale. And if I went that route with you, I would probably give you a couple of names. Now, let's just say that I, I gave you the couple, uh, names of a couple of people, and I said, well, you know what? I have two names of people that I'd like you to see right now. Uh, what, you can pick whichever one. I don't really care. One of them is a 24-year-old uh, young student. He finished tops in his class. He just got his master's degree. But tops in his class, number one. The other guy is 62 years old, can barely fit in, into his suit. He's 62, uh, around that age. And he's been practicing for 30 years. And in fact... I went to that guy a couple years ago because I needed someone to talk through some stuff with. You got the 24-year-old, tops of his class. You got a 62-year-old who's been practicing for 30 years. Who are you calling? Uh, you're calling the 62-year-old guy. Why? Because the best counselors are those who have lived long enough to have had a wide variety of challenges of their own to deal with in their life and have fought through the troubles themselves and have come out the other end in one piece. When you are desperate and you're looking for some comfort and answers, you don't want book knowledge. You want someone who understands and you want someone who can help. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? Jesus was. Even, even in his last moments. Have you ever been broke? You know, he was. In fact, he, he died with only the clothes on his back, and even that, they took away from him. You ever sit in your couch, in your living room, and you stare up into space, and you say to yourself, I have hundreds and hundreds of friends in social media, and I'm probably the loneliest person I know. Just before he died, Jesus said, my God... My God, why have you forsaken me? No one, no one was as lonely as Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor. He truly was all alone. And if you think that no one understands you, you're among good company because no one understood him. Facing death, he did so on a regular basis. Maybe your marriage is falling apart or those closest to you have, have forgotten you. Or, or maybe you've lost someone near and dear to you. I know we have people here tonight like that. Remember this name, Emmanuel, God with us. God is with you. You are not alone. And you can go to him this very night. Do you know why? Because he is a wonderful counselor who understands. And you can trust him with whatever you have. Because he understands but even more than that, because he's experienced it all. Because Jesus is at the heart of the story, I can have mercy and I can have grace. 
Why, why, why would he set up a pup tent and make his dwelling among pe- people, leave the splendor of heaven? Why would he go to a place where he knew beforehand he would be outrageously treated and eventually become a murder victim? Why did the divine become human and so become highly vulnerable to all the suffering and the things that we deal with every day? Why, why, why? That's the question. Well, I think the writer of Hebrews comes up with a pretty, pretty decent answer. He said this. He said, since the children of flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he... Here it is. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Why in the world would he have to come down if not to reach us with a special word of mercy and grace? And if that is the case, then we don't have to ever look at anything in our lives ever again and say, this is hopeless, this will never change. Because if God became man, then anything is possible. And Christmas means that miracles can happen today. But for those Christmas miracles to happen, for them to start to become a reality, i got to do something. I have to respond to his gracious overtures and what he wants to do in my life. Because if God became man, then there's a response that needs to come from me to his overtures of mercy and grace. Tomorrow morning, tonight, for some of you, uh, or Wednesday morning, someone was probably going to come up to you, probably, and with a beautifully wrapped package. I hate to open those, but... You know, my wife, she, she wraps them so nice. It's like, uh, I, I hate it, but you will. You know, you'll, you'll fight through that for about two seconds, and then you'll, 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 you'll push through that, and you'll rip it open, and you'll receive it with grateful hands. That's the way it works. That's the way mercy and grace is supposed to work. The Apostle John wrote in John chapter 1, verse 12, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. For me to see all the benefits that Christmas brings, I have to respond to the gospel. The angel said to the shepherds, remember? He said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The gospel says first this. Here's the great news. You ready? You're much worse than you think you are. You're more sinful. You're more warped. You're more guilty. You are further separated from God than you could ever understand or ever dare to admit. That's the beginning of the good news. And unless you understand that, the good news will mean very, very little. But here's the other side of the coin. There's more. The second half of the gospel says that you are more loved, you are more valued, you are more accepted by God than you can ever imagine. The Bible says that man sinned, and a man must pay for those sins. And God, in the face of human rebellion, had to do something. The pristine, holy God. He he was either going to have to inflict punishment or assume it. And he chose the latter course. He took upon himself his own judgment. Did you hear that? Do you hear what the Bible says? He took upon himself 
his own righteous judgment. The Bible says that Jesus came to reconcile all men, and in fact the entire universe, to make peace where right now there is animosity. He came into the world to save sinners. He came to bring reconciliation between sinners and a holy God. And no matter how painful your life may be, no matter how lonely you are tonight, no matter what type of deprivation you have had to endure and put up with, no matter the painful memories, Jesus came with the keys to release you from the dungeon of your own fears and doubts and to establish between you and God Almighty, a relationship through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The good news is that the people walking in darkness have seen a bright light. See, the, the word has come, and you can know this evening that all your sins are forgiven and that there is a place reserved for you in heaven. How can I ever know that? The Bible says you can because the story of Christmas is the story of the light of Jesus shining in the dark soul of the night, and the night soul. Now listen, I, I don't know uh, what you're going through, as I said, but I do know this. I know that God sent his son, and he, he did so in such a way that we would know how much he loves us. He would know, uh, uh, we would know how much he cares for us even in the difficulty of this world. Now, the birth of Jesus doesn't require us to suspend our faith in the real world. Some people think it does. The birth of Jesus is what anchors our faith in the real world, as a matter of fact, because he was born as one who looked full on the cultural chaos of his time, and he said, in this world, you will have tribulation and you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, the story of Christmas is that the light of Jesus shines in the nights the dark night of the soul. And it does. Now, I know from some of you what I've been talking about, and I, I'm done. I'm closing now. Um, uh, a lot of stuff doesn't make, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, virgin births and angelic visitors and God becoming man. It's not, it's not something you've given a lot of thought to. Maybe you did it one time. Maybe you went through uh, some sort of classes or some sort of religious activity and whatever. They, they anointed you or something, and, you know, that was the last time you really uh, were involved in this. And you really don't put much stock in it at all anymore. Maybe you're there. Or maybe you're questioning tonight. You, you just really, that's, that's all you're doing. You're just filled, filled with questions. Questioning and deep doubt. That's what you face every single day. But I have to tell you something right now. Jesus never shunned the doubters. He welcomed doubters. He always welcomes the seeker. When Mary was told of her pregnancy, her response was, how can this be? You know, what, what is that? The magi who earnestly sought after the one foretold of were giving a travel star, a travel guide to take them along. And you know what I think a lot of times? I think a lot of times we have someone close to us who has been standing there all along, kind of provided by God to be our star, our travel guide. And see, that's, that's part of God's mercy too. We want to give you a little early Christmas present tonight as you leave. It is entitled, Five Reasons to Believe in Jesus. And it may be a small mercy of God reaching out to you tonight, if you read that. Every individual... And every 
individual scene in the Christmas story. Whether it's Joseph and Mary, whether it's the shepherds, whether it's the magi, the oppressed under Herod, the oppressed under the Roman rule, even Jesus himself, even the Messiah himself, they all experienced what it meant to encounter soul-ravaging and joy-crushing evil and pain. But their hope found an anchor in deeper places. And so can yours, because the story of Christmas is that the light of Jesus shines. 